Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. Looks like my PowerPoint presentation is leaving too many spaces, so I uh, apologize for that. Um, there is an ancient tale from India about four brothers who decided that they were going to part company, go their separate ways, try to master a skill, and then come back and discuss it. So they did just that. They dispersed, they came back together, and the first brother says, I have mastered a science. I can take a solitary bone and I can put muscle on it. The second brother says, well, if you can do that, I can actually put skin and hair to it. And the third brother says, if you can do those things, I can actually put limbs on whatever it is you're creating. And the fourth brother says, if y'all can do all that, I can actually breathe life into that animal. I can make it come alive. And so they ventured off out into the jungle to look for a bone, and they found the solitary bone of a lion. And the first brother created muscle on that bone. The next brother put skin and hair to it. The third brother created the limbs, and the fourth brother gave it life. And that lion woke up, it stood, shook its mane, growled a ferocious growl or roar, and then turned and ate the four brothers. And that's an apt description of idolatry. The things that we create to worship have the ability to devour us. You may have noticed that the Bible seems to be obsessed with idolatry. Over and over again, throughout the pages of Scripture, you see the Holy Spirit alerting us to the dangers of creating gods and worshiping gods and devoting our lives to gods other than the one true holy God. And the theme of idolatry beats us over the head with its persistence and for good reason, because when it comes to the issue of idolatry, we humans have unlimited creativity. The problem is that idolatry is often vague. It's often subtle and it's often hard for us to put our finger on it. If we were talking about bowing down to a graven image or shaping and forming a golden calf, that would be easy. We would understand that and we could avoid that. But so many times, the idols we create are things that are good things. Things like your marriage, education, raising your children, maybe even your job or your career. Sex in the right context is, in context is a good thing. But so often we pervert these things. We allow them to take a place that overshadows God. We allow them to sit on the throne of our hearts. Idolatry inserts a substitute for the substance. Idolatry is replacing God, plain and simple. Even if the replacement is a good thing by itself, placing it before God makes it a not good thing, right? Because God has to come first. When it becomes the object of our affection, then it's no longer good. When it becomes a substitute, it's no longer good. In Acts chapter 17, we see that Paul is preaching in Athens, a city where you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a temple devoted to uh, a pagan god. And so Paul 
is amongst these people in this city of Athens. Some historians say there were 30,000 gods in this city that people devoted themselves to. But what does God see? When he looks out and he sees all these temples built to foreign gods, what does he see? He sees man's ability to accommodate the one true God. Did you notice that? When you read through Acts 17, you see that God puts on Paul that there is an ability for people to understand him as well. If they can take the time and energy to focus on all these other foreign gods, then certainly they can accommodate the one true God in their heart. People sometimes say, well, I don't have time for God. That's a lie. You make time for whatever you most desire. And so the person that says they don't have time for God is not telling the truth. You make time and you devote time to what you feel is most important. The issue isn't time. The issue is what's preempting God's place. What are you substituting God with? We cannot afford to waste our God-given time on things that draw our attention away from the one true God. Here's the problem with idolatry. Every God that we worship exacts a price. Every God that we worship demands payment. And sometimes it's an eternal price. Sometimes that payment is eternal. Idols demand that we sacrifice to them in order to keep them happy. And so if work is your idol, then you're likely going to sacrifice time with your family. You might sacrifice your marriage. If entertainment is your idol, then again, likely you're going to sacrifice things that are worth more or should be in the end. If, you know, sex is an idol to you, then you're going to sacrifice your marriage perhaps, your kids, the God of alcohol and drugs cause you to sacrifice your health. Whatever it is, there's always the potential of sacrificing a relationship with God in order to serve or bow down to the object of your affection. Because an idol is like fire. It never says that's enough. It just keeps on consuming. It keeps on demanding more. The idol of idolatry, the altar of idolatry is terrifyingly insatiable. The more you sacrifice, the more it demands. And the underlying deception associated with idolatry is that God is not enough. And our sin flows from this deception. Because adultery says that my spouse is not enough. Covetousness assumes that what God has blessed me with is not enough. Pride says I am enough. Whatever it is, idolatry is saying that God is not enough and I've got to have something else or I've got to substitute something for him. Idolatry flows from a heart that is not satisfied with God. He is not enough. So people manufacture these various idols to fill a void in their life that only God can fill. It cannot be denied that our idols are willfully chosen. We choose them. We craft them in our own minds, in our own imagination. They don't pop up by accident, and they're not innocent either. They are conceived in our imagination, formed by our hands, and worshipped by our will. A golden calf is not a, an idol in and of itself. Money is not an idol in and of itself. It's man's relationship. It's man's devotion to these things that make them idols. You might remember in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4, it reads, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. 
God would not have to give this commandment if idol worship were involuntary. But it's not. We choose our idols. And do you realize that the Bible never accepts man's excuses for idolatry? Never, ever. Never do you see God accepting someone saying, this is why I'm worshiping an idol. Here's the reason, God, because there is no excuse. And part of it comes from what we read in the opening in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. You know, when Royce was reading this, I thought, wow, that's a real encouraging piece of scripture to start with. But it really flows with what we're talking about this morning. It reads, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So that they are without excuse. Because God plainly reveals himself. We can see it. In his creation, it points to a holy God. Man is never justified in worshiping something other than a holy God. So, let's dive into our text this morning. It's found in Hebrews chapter 11. Starting in verse 17, here's what we read. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. And he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Here's the problem. We read the story of Abraham and Isaac backward. And that does a grave injustice to this story. Right? We know that this is a test. We know that it all works out and it has a happy ending. But if we could just go back to the beginning... And, and do our best to read it and putting ourselves in Abraham's position. So you go back to the beginning in Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2, and it reads like this. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Here's where we start. At the beginning, we start with God's command. And I want you to notice that it is a qualified command. It's qualified in three ways. Again, look at it. Take now your son, your only son, the promised son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. God's trying to say, you know, make no mistake which son I'm talking about. If you were ever confused, it's that only son, the one whom you prayed about, the one you love, that, that son Isaac. That's the one I want you to take and I want you to sacrifice on the region of Moriah. Now, let's be clear about what's happening here. God was telling Abraham to take this son, to take him to which is now Jerusalem, to Moriah, and build an altar of stones. And on that stones, on those stones, I want you to place a platform of wood. I want you to lay Isaac on that wood. I want you to take your knife, and I want you to slit his throat. After he bleeds out, you're going to light it on fire, and he's going to be a burnt offering to me. You ever thought about the story in those terms? Because that's what God's commanding Abraham to do. And when you put yourself in the position of Abraham, 
Those of you who have sons, fathers, it's a terrifying story, isn't it? We read this story with the benefit of knowing how it's going to turn out, knowing that it's a test. But you know, you think about it in terms of Abraham and having a son. James, you think about your Abraham, and he tells you to take your son Jay and sacrifice him on the altar. You know, it tells Jake, take Truman and lay him on the altar. The story resonates more when we look at it from that perspective and we don't just read it backwards. Put yourself in Abraham's position. He's in a point where he has to either obey or, or disobey, one or the other. He might try to reason with God. He might try to talk him out of it, but even that would be disobedience. There is no middle ground here. He has to obey or disobey. There's no middle ground. And what we see Abraham do here is very telling. And it's a lesson for us. Abraham has to face this, this idea of whether he will believe and leave. And I think we all face that in our lives at some point. To have a child die before their parents is kind of like putting a period before the sentence ends. Parents shouldn't have to bury their children. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. And then add to that, that Abraham is going to be the one who puts his son to death. You think about how horrifying that would be. Not only is he going to kill his own child, he's going to do it in the most gruesome fashion. And to top it all off, God's the one telling him to do it. That's not very godly of God, is it? But notice Hebrews eleven seventeen. 17. It states that Abraham offered up Isaac, which means that Abraham went to Moriah with the intent of killing his son. When he laid Isaac on the altar, when he drew that knife, he was intent on following through with God's command. Abraham didn't know. When he set out on that three-day journey to Moriah, he had no idea what was about to take place. He just knew that this was the next step. He had trusted God before. He was going to continue to trust God. Abraham simply believed, and he left it all up to God. It was a believe-and-leave philosophy. Believe in God. Trust God and leave the details up to Him. You see, we don't have all the answers. We want the answers. So many times we don't want to launch out in faith and just trust God. We want to know what's on the horizon. We want to have more information before we set out. But you know what that is? You know what it is when you have all the facts beforehand? That's knowledge. That's not faith. And if you have perfect knowledge, you don't need faith. Sometimes our only job as a Christian is to put one foot in front of the other. Sometimes that's our only job is just to keep moving forward. And that's what Abraham was doing. He didn't have all the details. He didn't know how this was going to work out. But he trusted in God and left him with the details. He left the how up to God. Abraham perfectly illustrates this for us. Notice verse 5 of Genesis 22. It says, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Did you catch that? So God promises to make Abraham the father of many nations. Through the son Isaac, he's going to bring forth offspring. There seems to be a, quite a contradiction here. If Abraham was to go through with this and sacrifice his son, then what does that do about the promise? But if Abraham disobeys and he doesn't go through with it, that probably cancels out the promise. 
It's kind of in a, in a, in a pretty rough position here. He doesn't know what, what the outcome's going to be. Abraham didn't know how God was going to handle it. But he knew he would. He knew that he was going to handle it. He knew that he didn't have to concern himself with the details because he told the men that he had caravaned with that he and Isaac would return. The young men must have been confused. How in the world are y'all going to return if you go over there and you kill him? But Abraham didn't know the answer to that question necessarily. He just knew that it was going to happen. That they were going to go over there and they were going to you know, do whatever and they were going to come back and they were both going to return. Abraham just kept moving forward in faith. God said, go. And so Abraham went. God said, offer your beloved son. And so he did. God said, stop. And so he did. That's why he is listed here in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. That's why he's a beautiful example to all of us. Because Abraham believed and he left the details up to God. But I want you to notice verse 19 again of Hebrews 11. It says, He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. How could Abraham say to his men who caravaned with him, Isaac and I are going to go over here, we're going to worship, and then we will return to you? How could he say that? Because he believed that God could do something. He believed in a God who could resurrect people from the dead. As far as we know, Abraham never seen that before, but he believed that God could do something, right? The Hebrew writer tells us Abraham believed and he left the details up to God. He didn't know how, but he applied faith to the situation. He allowed God to work and he assumed that whatever happened, even if it meant that he would have to go through with killing his son, God would bring him back. In other words, Abraham had full confidence that God was in control and therefore he had nothing to worry about. This is the peak moment of Abraham's faith. What did Abraham know at this point? Well, he knew that God had promised to make him the father of many nations. He knew that. He knew that God had promised to bless the world through Isaac. He knew that much. He didn't know about the ram in the thicket. He didn't know the end of the story. He didn't know how God was going to reconcile the promise of blessing with the death of Isaac. He didn't know all of that. It didn't make sense to him. But he trusted. Even though obeying God's command would mean killing that promise, Abraham didn't argue. He didn't object, he didn't quit, because there was something deep down inside of Abraham that believed that God was going to come through. Do you believe that? I have no doubt that you want to believe that. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard sometimes to trust in God and to just keep putting one foot in front of the other when you don't have all the details worked out. I know you're striving to be godly. I know you want to glorify God in everything you do, but it's hard. Because the idols we serve get in the way. If we were talking about golden calves here or bowing down to some graven image, that would be easy to put our finger on. As far as I know, none of you sprinkle chicken blood on anything and and dance around an object. You know, that would be easy to discern, right? But that's not what we're talking about always. Sometimes the greatest blessings become a curse for us because we bow down and worship the blessing rather than the blesser. And it comes in all shapes and forms. It comes in the form of of titles and athletic prowess and education and initials at the end of our name and all those kind of things, right? 
Sometimes it's even the children that we raise. If you like the Lord of the Rings movies, you know who this is. Remember this guy? Gollum was obsessed with something, wasn't he? He was obsessed with the one ring. My precious, as he called it. He had a hellish romance with this one ring. And in fact, his life became centered around a devotion. Actually, it was a love-hate relationship, wasn't it? If you've seen the movies, you know that in one sense, he loved it. He couldn't live without it. In another sense, he despised it because of what it had done to him, both his mind and his body, right? If you saw this movie, you might have related to Gollum. I think that's what Tolkien had in mind. Because we all have the potential to, to bow down, to devote our lives to something that cannot fulfill us. We all have this, this potential to develop a hellish romance with something other than God. And you know what, what makes it worse is it's not just about receiving the thing, whatever it is. Many times it's a blessing from God. But it's not just about receiving it. We don't just want to be receivers, do we? No, like Gollum, we want to be the Lord over it. We don't just want to receive it. That, that's, that's good. That's fine. But ultimately, we want to be the Lord over it. We want to control whatever the thing is. It's the story of Adam and Eve, isn't it? Adam and Eve didn't just want to partake of that forbidden fruit. What did they want? They wanted control, control of the garden. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to have that knowledge of good and evil so that they could be like God. If you've ever or are currently worshiping an idol, you know exactly, exactly what I'm talking about. It's this hellish romance. In fact, that's what hell is. Hell is God finally giving you over to all those idols that you served your entire life. I've heard it described this way. Like little children, we come to God with our hands empty and we ask God to bless us. And because God is a good God, he, he blesses us. And so our hands are filled and that's when God says, I want a relationship with you. Take my hand. Well, I, I can't. My hands are full. Well, put some of that stuff down and take my hand. I, I, I don't want to put any of it down. I love my blessings. I want to hang on to them. And God is imploring his people, look, you can't follow me without taking up a cross. And you're like, well, I don't want to put any of this down to take up a cross. And so we hold tightly to the things that we can't take with us when we die anyway. So we take these blessings and they override the blesser. Our hands are full. And our relationship with God is hindered because we can't turn loose of the things that he has blessed us with. And you think God's thinking, but I gave you those things. I can take them back at any moment. It's me that you need to have the relationship with, not those things. Those are all bonuses anyway, right? That's the story of Abraham. Abraham had to reach a place where he could willingly give back to God what belonged to him in the first place. You see, all these blessings that we have, they're just bonuses. That great job that you have, the wonderful children that you have, the wonderful marriage that you have, the education that you have, the material blessings that you have, you were never promised those things. Those are all bonuses. Where do they come from? They come from a loving God 
How in the world could we allow those blessings to override the blesser? When you think about it, it's easy to do, but when we think about it, can you keep the gift that God has given you on the proper shelf? If you had to choose between the gift and the giver like Abraham did, which would you choose? Can you love the gift without worshiping it? Can you hold lightly what you value greatly? Look at verse 12 of Genesis 22. He, God, said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son. Now skip down to verse 16. And said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. At this point, the test is over, okay? Abraham has passed, son is spared. The ram in the thicket is offered in Isaac's place. The promise is reaffirmed. Turns out the story has a really happy ending. But I want you to notice God's praise for Abraham. He says, you did not withhold from me. In other words, God says, I asked of your greatest blessing. And you were willing to put it on the altar. Idolatry makes sense if you're going to live on this earth forever. But if you're not, it's a really dumb decision. Idolatry makes no sense because life really looks like this, doesn't it? You're born, you grow up, you get a good job, you work hard your entire life, you may take a few vacations, you retire and you die. I mean, that's life, isn't it, in a nutshell? And you know what your children are going to do? Same thing. You know what their children are going to do? Same thing. The average life expectancy in America is 78.7 years. I don't know how you live a .7, but that's the average life expectancy. And that may seem like a long time. 78 years might seem like a long time, and it is really. But compared to eternity, it's a microscopic blip, right? So how you live here means everything. The point is, you're not going to be here long term. So, you have a choice to make. Are you going to pursue the gift or are you going to pursue the giver? And please understand that your idols die with you. So, to be an idolater means that you're a loser here and you're a loser in eternity. Not a very wise decision. The only thing that God has promised us is Himself, everything else is a bonus. If you're wondering whether I'm an idolater or not, let's do a little idol inventory. Here's three questions you can ask yourself. Because again, it can be subtle. It can be, it can be hard to put your finger on. First of all, do I want this too much? Whatever it is. Do I want it too much? Secondly, has this become too important to me? How would I react if this were t- suddenly taken away from me? If we're being totally honest... These are not easy questions to come to grips with always, especially if we are serving an idol, if we are bowing down to an idol. But God never promised us any of these gifts. And just because you have them now doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to have them tomorrow. What is your Isaac? What is it that you need to lay on the altar for Jesus' sake? 
For some, it's not a matter of smashing the idol into pieces and pulverizing it, kind of like they did in the Old Testament where they commanded to, to pulverize it and then drink its contents. You know, that's not a really good plan if your idol is your children. But sometimes it's about recognizing what the idol is and putting it in its proper place. And the beauty of all of this is that your life will be lived more harmoniously when God assumes the proper place in your life. Your children will never suffer because you put God first. Your marriage will never suffer because you put God first. It is an undeniable fact that we love others best when we love God the most. And your children will only benefit when God comes first. Your marriage will only benefit when God comes first. You will never regret putting Him above anything in your life. Because putting God first is the most loving thing you could ever do for your family. In Genesis chapter 22, we see what one man was willing to do for his love for God. And it was all foreshadowing to a greater sacrifice, wasn't it? We've said it before, and I will continue to say it. When you study the Bible, don't read it backwards. Don't go hunting and pecking your way through Scripture. Don't look at the Bible like, you know, your proof text. You know, I've got this idea, and now I'm going to go to the Bible to find affirmation for it. Read the Bible as it's meant to be read, a story, one continuous story from Genesis to Revelation, a story of redemption, a story of renewal and restoration, and the story of Abraham and Isaac fits directly into that narrative. It's a beautiful story because at Calvary, at Calvary we see what God would do for the love of mankind. A thousand years removed from the story of Abraham and Isaac, David buys a little plot of land to build an altar to worship God. And that little plot of land was the exact same spot where we see Abraham almost offer his son. Same region, I should say, where Abraham almost offered his son Isaac. On that same property, David's son Solomon would build the temple. Another thousand years passes, and on that same land, a father sacrificed his only begotten son. But this time it wasn't a test. God actually went through with the sacrificing of his only son. No one stepped in to say stop. God went through with it. The wrath of God was poured out on his son for a moment while his son took on the sins of the world, while God sacrificed his son on the altar in that same region. I want you to notice some parallels when it comes to the story of Abraham and of God. Throw that on the screen. Abraham offered his son. The Heavenly Father offered his son. Isaac carried the wood. Jesus carried the wood as well. Isaac was laid on the altar and Jesus was nailed to the cross. The ram was offered in the place of Isaac. Jesus was offered in our place. Abraham received his son back alive. And God received his son back alive. I want to encourage you this morning to do in spirit 
what Abraham did physically. Whatever your idol is, lay it on the altar and come as we stand and as we sing.